Well, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words or names will never hurt you. Just quick poll. How many people have heard their parents or their teacher in the past say something like that to them? Yeah? Okay. A lot. A lot. Now, that's parental wisdom. That's teacher's wisdom. They say it all the time when people are, especially little kids, are complaining about a bit of name calling at school. When the, when the playground environment just gets a little bit harsh. Sticks and stones will break your bones, but words or names will never hurt you. Do you know, I think there must have been about 10 years went by when I actually believed them. But the sticks and stones saying is actually a lot of nonsense. Because it does really hurt when people say horrible things to you. It really is distressing when people say horrible things to others about you in order to defame you or discredit you or get at you. It's hard. James 3 gives us a really good understanding of the impact of our words. When it describes the tongue as a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole person, its evil consumes them and sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow, what a description that is. What an insight into the power of words. Hurtful words, of course, aren't confined to school playgrounds. They're actually part and parcel of everyday life. And I dare say that believers in particular can find themselves as targets for those whose mouths are not restrained and whose hearts are evil and unkind. Perhaps you've experienced yourself some kind of criticism or mockery for what you believe about God. Maybe you have experienced, on the other hand, the lies and deceit of others as they have broken your trust. Maybe you've known people at work or even in your family to lie to others in order to discredit you in some way. Sayings of sticks and stones what help, won't help. The question is, what will? Or Psalm 120 does, actually. God's word helps us, serves us in this way. It gives us a song, an expression of what it is to experience these things in this world and helps us know what we should say and, and how we should respond and what we could ask God to do. Because in Psalm 120, we have a person whose feelings are recorded using words like distress and woe. And the reason for that distress is spelled out for us in verse 2, as we've highlighted. Lying lips and deceitful tongues, sins of speech. And his response in here is exemplary. He gives us a song to sing when we feel the way that he felt. So... If you're taking notes, let me map it out for you. Here's what we're going to do. Three points. Number one, look back. Number two, look up. Number three, look forward. That's what people of faith do when we experience this kind of opposition. Look back, look up, look forward. We need a faith, first of all, that looks back. In the NIV, verse one reads in the present tense. But in Hebrew, the verbs are actually all in the past tense. In that it would be a better rendering to say, I called upon the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. 
So you see what the psalmist is doing with that rendering there. He's looking back to times in the past when God has helped him through other times of difficulty in order to remind him in the present that God is going to help him today in the present. And this is one of the best ways, actually, of pressing on through hard times when we experience difficulty in our lives. It was John Newton who wrote, uh, his love, speaking of God's love, his love in times of in times past, forbid me to think he'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. How true. The psalmist might well have written the same thing. The same sentiment is in this psalm. He's remembering a past situation or situations, recalling how he prayed, recalling what happened next. Maybe he's asking the question, did I make it through? Oh yes, I did make it through. With God's help, Did God answer my prayers in the past? Well, yes, God did answer my prayers according to his grace. Was God faithful in those times? Well, yes, he was. He was completely faithful, as is consistent with his character and his promises. And reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of God and how he strengthened us through hard times helps us deal with current struggles. God has helped us before. Now, I wonder if you take the time to actually remember how God has helped you in times gone by? Do you take the time to think about how God has helped you in the past when you cried out to him and you saw him answer your prayers? Can you think back to a time when something happened that caused you concern? Something just took the wind out of you and knocked you sideways. You maybe wondered how exactly you would get through. Maybe you can recall God's faithfulness toward you and how he answered your prayers and strengthened your steps. Surely one of the application points, one of the takeaways from today is just to make a point of trying to find ways to keep your memory fresh. And remember what God has done in your life. Make time to refresh your memory. Well, how, you might say? Well, in in a sense, it's easy. Let me give you two examples of what you can do. One, you could write stuff down. Keep a little journal. Use Evernote. Evernote's a wonderful app. Or use a diary or a a piece of paper. Keep a journal. Take notes on the situations you face. Write down what you pray for. And I mean, how many times, how many answers to prayer have we so easily forgotten? Just because we've been careless or maybe even thankless. The second thing you could do quite simply is pray with others. This is why it's important to Journey together, if you like. This is why growth groups are going to be important for us in the, later on this year when we start them up again. As we go through this life with other people together, we share our prayer points. And it's often when you're in the muck, in the mire, or you're in some kind of distress, and you're saying, oh, I'm just struggling to know exactly what to do in this situation. And the other person can say, maybe who's seeing the situation more clearly, oh, but do you remember how this happened a year ago? Do you remember what God did in those times? He was faithful to rescue you from that. What didn't we see God work superbly to bring you through that situation? So that helps us. Being involved in each other's lives is, again, it's a necessary and important thing. Now, I think we're sloppy at this. And we, we just give ourselves blessing amnesia just by not doing these two things. And as a result, we can leave ourselves feeling 
maybe a little bit too distressed when some situations come our way. But keep our memory fresh. Keep your heart thankful. And we'll have the kind of faith that keeps going even in times of distress and woe. That's important. Because it's in those times when we might be tempted to let go. Or doubt God's goodness and his character. To doubt whether or not he's faithful to us. Because when we do this, this is what we come to realize. When we call God answers, we'll see his faithfulness. God delights to answer the prayers of his children. And this is what encourages us to cry out to God again and again for help, just as the psalmist does in verse 2. And this is point 2. Look up. Don't just look back to see that God has helped you before. Look up. To see that God is going to help you again. Ask for his help once more. Verse 2 says, Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and deceitful tongues. Now, we don't know exactly what the situation was that the psalmist was experiencing. We don't know if people he trusted had lied and broken that trust. That is a painful experience. Maybe people had been spreading false rumors about him, lying about him, trying to discredit him, attack his reputation. That can really be ruinous for a person. We do get the hint later on in verse 7 that there is, there's a hint of opposition in there. When he speaks there for war, he's just, he's just at odds. There's no agreement there with those around him. Well, maybe the deceitful tongues are wagging maliciously because of unbelief. If this guy is as half as godly as his response to distress indicates, then his life, I reckon, would no, be no doubt, in no doubt distinctive from those around him. And maybe that's what makes him the focus. Maybe that's what causes him to bear the brunt of malicious talk. Well, we can experience that as well. When we trust in Jesus and follow him, people can insult us and falsely say all kinds of evil against us because of our faith in Jesus. Those, in fact, are Jesus' words from Matthew 5.11. And this is so important to realize When we're on the receiving end of insults and malicious talk, deceitful tongues, we need to be careful that we don't respond sinfully. And there are two temptations when we're upset by the things that people say. Maybe one, introspection, and two, retaliation. When you look at introspection in hard times, it's all too easy to retreat into yourself, physically, spiritually. Physically, you may want to avoid people. You might want to just hunker down, batten down the hatches. It's like damage limitation. But that's, that's a wrong thing to do. The psalmist doesn't do that. Instead of retreating in hopelessness, the psalmist looks in a better direction for help. He looks up to God. He prays to him. Save me, O oh God. But what about retaliation? This is the, at the other end of the scale. This is probably the biggie. It's so tempting to want to get your own back when someone lies to you or lies about you. You ever experienced that? All you want to do is pay back insult for insult. Lie for lie. You want the person causing you distress to get a taste of his own medicine. But the psalmist doesn't do that. Instead of answering back, the psalmist looks in a better direction for help. He looks up. Save me, O God's from lying lips and deceitful tongues. Now that's what people of faith do. They cry out to God in prayer. Because prayer is the antithesis of self-sufficiency and and independence. It says, 
I, I don't have to deal with this by myself, but I trust in the one who can, the one who, according to his goodness, answers prayer. We read in 1 Peter 2, 23, don't we, of, of the way Jesus responded when people hurled their insults at him. It says, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's the example Jesus set us. Not only actually in retaliation, but in prayer. Jesus is the preeminent man of prayer. Jesus prayed often and regularly. He prayed with passion and with tears. He sometimes prayed all night. When he faced great crises, he did so with prayer. We hear him in John 17, for example, praying for his disciples and for the church the night before he died. We see him in Gethsemane petitioning God again and again. Even in his distress. And finally he died praying on the cross. Father, forgive them. And they don't know what they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We can pray to our gods. We don't retaliate. We don't retreat into ourselves. We pray to the one who truly has the power to save and follow Christ's example. Well, not only do we look back to see that God has helped us before or look up to see that God will help us again and cry out for that help. Thirdly, we look forward. We look forward. We need a faith that looks forward. A faith that looks forward to two things as we see in this psalm. The time when God will deal with those with deceitful tongues. And the time when the psalmist will be in the place where he truly belongs. In verses 3 to 4, we, we see that the psalmist looks forward to a day when God will finally deal with wickedness. Even the wickedness that he is experiencing. Look with me, verses 3 and 4. What will he do to you? So he's talking here like God has already answered his prayer. He's already answered What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue, he will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows and the burning coals of a broom tree. Now, there's no hiding that whatsoever. That is brutally honest. It is punishment for the wicked. Punishment for those who do wrong and who do evil. And the psalmist talks in particular about arrows and coals. Well, arrows when you think about them, are not used for mass destruction, but for picking out enemies one by one. I think that in the poetry of this, we're supposed to see, in the symbolism of it, we're supposed to see, well, the arrows will be sharp, certainly, but they will be direct and on target. Those who deserve judgment will be judged. The wood of the broom tree, well, that's solid wood. I mean, if you're barbecuing, you want broom tree woods. Next time you go to B&Q, Ask them for some broom tree coals. I don't know if they do them, but it'll be interesting to see. Broom tree coals, it was solid wood, so it made for the best burning wood, and it would burn not only the longest, but the hottest. So that gives you an image of the intensity of the punishment of the wicked who do not find their salvation and forgiveness in God. Now what the psalmist is doing here is looking forward to the day when that judgment will come. And we can do the same. Before we see the new city of the, the heavenly city of Jerusalem descend and God 
dwelling with his people, with the people who at that great heavenly feast are rejoicing with the bridegroom, the lamb, you have chapter 20. A scene of great judgment referred to with terms like the second death. Hell and judgment are a very real thing. And we would be unwise to think that judgment will not come. It is a serious thing. We must expect it if we trust in and believe in the God of the Bible, who is a God of justice. He will always do what is right. He will never condone sin, but deal with it. And it's not a bad thing for his people to look forward to the time when it will be dealt with. We should all long for the day when all sin is gone and every injustice set right. But what is bad is when we try and take that judgment and bring it forward or take that punishment into our own hands. As I've said, that's not what the psalmist is doing. He trusts that God is one day going to act and he's going to act rightly. This is why he doesn't retaliate. This is why he can trust in God. He knows that one day justice will be done. We read about this in the New Testament, don't we? In Romans 12, 17 and following. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, he said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head sign of judgment now you may be more than a little hurt and more than a little resentful about the things that people have said to you or perhaps about you you may feel like you've been dealt with unjustly you may feel like you need to do something but here is what you can do cry out save me O God save me O God Ask God to act. Ask God to do what is right. Because he is the God who will always do what is right. That would be consistent with his, with his character. Because unlike us, he has the power to ensure that justice is carried out rightly and the wisdom to know how to do it perfectly. Then verses 5 to 7 tell us that The psalmist is not looking forward only to the time when wickedness will be gone and God's just judgment enacted. It tells us actually that he's looking forward to the day when he will truly be with the people and be in the place where he belongs, the place he he longs for. Look with me, verse 5. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar, What's all this about? Where's Meshech and where's Kedar? You'll not find them on Google Maps. But let me tell you that in that day, Meshech was located on the far north of the Caspian Sea. Kedar was located in the far south of the Arabian Peninsula. They're like John O'Groats and Land's Ends, basically. So he he doesn't actually, he's been poetic here. He's he's saying, too long have I lived in these places. Now, he's not not lived in one and decided this isn't a very nice place. I'm going to flit. I'm going to move. And he's he's moved down to to Kedar. No, it's not that. It's not even that he normally lives in Meshech, but in the summer months he moves down to Kedar. It's just that he's saying, actually, I feel the way that people act around me, it feels like I am living 
in some of the most far-reaching, pagan, unbelieving places ever. That's, that's, his, that's what he's expressing. He's using figurative language to tell us how he's feeling. He's, it's like, my experience is so hard, my distress so keenly felt, I'm, it feels like I'm living in lands that don't know God. And that's what makes him homesick for somewhere else. And that's another key theme in these Psalms of Ascent. They're homesick. Homesick for the city they long for. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I'm a man of peace, but when I speak, they're for war. Now in that text, the words for dwell and live in Hebrew refer to a temporary dwelling. The word dwell, of course, means to sojourn, just to pass through. And the word live means to tabernacle, to pitch a tent temporarily. Now I don't know about you, but when I'm traveling somewhere, I quite like staying in a hotel. Do you like staying in hotels? I like staying in a nice hotel anyway. I like staying in a nice hotel when you go and you get a free newspaper. I know it's not really free, you've paid for it. Okay, but don't burst my bubble. I, I like it when you go and they've got a nice swimming pool that's not freezing cold. Or the jacuzzi's attached to the side of, so you can sit in the jacuzzi and wave to your kids as they're playing. You know, I, I love a nice hotel. It's nice and comfy. You know, you just slip in, into the sheets and you're like, oh, that's, oh, it's so comfy. I love it. But no matter how much I enjoy staying in hotels, I would never think of making one my home. Although I knew a guy who did. Years ago when I lived in Dundee, my in-laws were members of a local gym. And every time Catherine and I went with them for a swim, we'd see this old man come in. Half past eight, you could set your watch by him every time. And he would come for a swim. And one day, as the story goes, he checked into the hotel and just didn't check out. Uh, If he's still alive, he's probably still living there. He checked into the Woodlands Hotel, a best Western hotel. Now, as much as I enjoy, enjoy hotels, I could never do that. No matter how comfortable the room, no matter how good the breakfast, no matter how great the jacuzzi, everybody knows that a hotel is not meant for a permanent residence. And yet we as Christians can sometimes treat this world in that very way. We just treat this world like this is, it's a a hotel, effectively. We're living in a mobile home. And we're on our way to a greater permanent destination. Yet we make the mistake sometimes of living our lives as if this is all there is. As Paul Tripp has said, we treat this like a destination rather than a preparation for what is to come. I mean, there are many things to enjoy in this world. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We can enjoy living life in this world. We can live it to the full when we follow Jesus. But we should beware the mistake of the old man. This is not our home. Especially when we realize how much we dwell in wickedness. The temptation for us as we dwell in this place and dwell among those who do not know Jesus is to be loose on our morals. We We want to fit in. That's a common temptation for us, isn't it? And yet the Bible calls us, clearly calls us to be a distinctive people, a holy people, who look forward to the new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. The psalmist does that. He longs for home. He longs to go up to Jerusalem to be with God's people. We'll see that in Psalm 122. I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. He's like, yes. And we can be like that concerning the new heaven and new earth. 
We should long for that, for the heavenly Jerusalem. If we find ourselves being too comfortable in this world, we might need to wonder whether or not our faith is real. If we don't find times in our lives where we say, oh, this is too long have I lived. If we don't find in our hearts this longing to be done away with this body of sin, this life of sin, this world of suffering and hardship, and long for that day when there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no hospitals, no hearses, no hankies. If we don't find a longing for that, maybe we should examine our hearts. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. It's great that you're here. This life, I want to say, as this passage shows us, is not all there is. There is a God in heaven who loves us. He is the creator of all things, and he has made you. In fact, he has made you in his image to be, if you like, a mirror. He's made you to be like a reflection of who he is to the world. But do you know how we live our lives when we don't trust him? We're like that. We don't reflect his image. We just reflect our own. And that's a problem. That's called rebellion. We're not, made, we're not doing what we were made to do. You know what God did about that? He did not leave us to face that judgment. He sent his son into this world, made in his perfect image, the image of the invisible God. He sent him in love to rescue us from the penalty for that rebellion. He died on the cross in our place to take away the sin of all who would trust in him. And he rose from the dead three days later. To vind- God vindicated him by his resurrection and declared him to be who he said he was, the son of God. And what happens, what he calls for is repentance and faith. He calls you to turn away from this rebellion and turn back to God. And he resets us and helps us to live as we ought to live, as people made in his image in obedience to him reflecting the goodness of God to the entire world so that all may come to know him. And our prayer as believers here is that you would use this tongue, these lips of yours, this heart of yours to cry out in praise to God for that's what it was made for. You could confess your sin and pray to God trust in him tonight and I pray you would if you want to know more about what I've just explained in these last 60 seconds we'd love to chat to you about it I'll be at the door afterwards please do have a chat with me or else fill in one of the connect cards that are in the pew around you we must be those who in the midst of as believers we must be those who in the midst of difficulty and trial trust in the Lord our God when, it, when we experience hardships, when people are saying horrible things about us, when we're feeling down and dejected, saying, too long have I lived in this ridiculous and difficult situation. Come, Lord Jesus. If his coming is delayed, according to his perfect timing and wisdom, Psalm 120 is your song. You can look back It encourages you to look back to see how God has helped you before. Look up. Cry out to God knowing that he will help you again. And 
look forward, knowing that God will deal with things justly. And finally, one day, take you to be where you ought to be. I'd like us just to take a few moments to bow our heads in response.